Access Reality. I'm Ali Kadili. We have Dr. Philip Ball uh, with us today. Um, Dr. Ball has, did his undergraduate work in chemistry uh, at the University of Oxford and got a PhD in physics. He's been an editor. He was an editor at Nature Magazine for over 20 years, which for those of you who don't know is the one of the most prestigious uh, publications in science. And in fact, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say one publication in Nature will can make an academic career. Um, Dr. Ball is um, a prolific uh, writer. Um, he's also written for The Guardian, New York Times, and he produced a three-part uh, series on nanotechnology in BBC Radio 4. Um, his last book is How to Grow a Human, Adventures in Who We Are and How We Are Made. Uh, his book before that in 2018 was Beyond Weird, Why Everything You Thought You Knew About Quantum Physics is Different. So thank you very much for being here, Dr. Ball. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. All right, it's great. So when uh, someone looks at your profile, I think they find something very remarkable, which is the interdisciplinary nature of your work and your path. Um, I mean, you've um, written about physics, biology, chemistry, history, art. Um, I think that by and large, when you look at the whole landscape of science and art, that that is not a common quality or commodity. Would you agree with that? The sense that uh, someone sort of encompasses both, you mean, or that writes about both of those those areas. Correct. We'll we'll approach a problem bringing in pulling in two different fields or two different perspectives. It's usually yeah, yeah. physics. Physics people stay in physics. Let's say. I guess it's true, and it's always uh, saddens me that that's the case. And um, you know, I think that's something that the structures of academia, in particular encourage but i think it's actually something that the structures of our education system encourage as well that uh you know we learn from a very early stage that knowledge is divided up into these different disciplines uh with clear boundaries between them and one of the things i always try to do when i you know i sometimes talk to uh, school children of all ages and i'm very keen to try to make it clear to them that those divisions are ones are, are, are matters of convenience that actually understanding stuff, you know, doesn't fall into those neat categories, those, those neat distinctions. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's, it's really a conscious choice that I've made since I've been a writer and increasingly made to try to find areas, topics that not only go between scientific disciplines, but that go, you know, from science to, to the humanities. Um, and really that all of this is part of our culture part of our cultural heritage and I think that's really what I really what, what I what I try to convey in what I write that to fully understand a subject like color or invisibility so those are two of the topics of books that I've written about it's no good approaching ideas like that from the point of view of a particular science or even from you know just science itself uh, generally you've got to take in the whole of culture and weave the science into the rest of culture so i consciously set out to try to do that in what i write yeah i think that uh maybe when you're a writer or a free freelancer or you know it might be possible to do that but the problem is is by the time people reach that point in their career uh, throughout their formation, they've already been forced to think in a confined way. Um, like I, I know people in, you know, who have PhDs or want to do postdocs and who have an interest in pulling in, let's say, just one other discipline with what they're doing. And they're actively discouraged from that. 
um, because whoever's supervising them isn't really comfortable with that idea. I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's actually a problem that has got worse in uh, recent years um, in the sense that, you know, young academics, young people going into academic research uh, have a tremendous pressure to uh, get on as quickly as possible and to produce as quickly as possible, which means that they have to become, you know, incredibly specialised in a very short space of time to make an impact in that field and really have no opportunity and no time and, as you say, no encouragement to, to look beyond that. It's actually why um, one reason why I didn't stay in research myself. I did a PhD in physics and... I figured that when I came to the end of it, you know, I, I had uh, the potential to stay within physics and stay within research, but I could see that that would be an ever narrowing path. And I think for some of the people who I um, studied alongside, you know, I can see that they are still working in, you know, related areas to the ones that they began in decades ago. Um, so, you know, I think it's very, very hard to break out of that very often the people the scientists who do that are only they only do so at the end of their career where they have the luxury of doing that if they've made their name within their field you know perhaps they have the luxury of branching out um but i think that for young researchers it's extremely difficult to to do that and i think that's that's a, a, a real problem it's a real problem for science because some of the biggest challenges facing us uh, are ones and facing scientists are ones that aren't going to be solved from within the the, the tram lines of any particular discipline. And there's a big um, move, you know, these days, at least in terms of the way people talk about things, there's a big uh, sort of um, uh, uh, support for the, the notion of interdisciplinarity, of disciplines collaborating. And I'm all for that, and I think it's a great thing. Um, but I think, you know, what often tends to happen when you get those collaborations is that the scientists find they speak a different language. They are talking, they seem to be talking about the same thing, and then they discover that actually they're talking about something different because they have different understandings of the same word. So, you know, I think this is a problem that potentially holds back science, that there is this encouragement to specialize, to become very narrow very quickly. It's not something, of course, that existed in science in the past. Um, and I, I, I really hope that science will find ways of loosening those constraints in the future. Yeah, it's why the world hasn't produced many Leonardo da Vinci's uh, since his time. Well, you know, it's often said that um, this division, the whole division between the, the sciences and the humanities or between science and art, that that's something that began around the time of the Renaissance and certainly wouldn't have made any um, uh, sense to someone like Leonardo. I mean, one has to say Leonardo was was a one off that, you know, there aren't many Leonardos that, that come along. But I think, you know, that there, there, there is some truth in that notion. And I think it was particularly in the 19th century um, when disciplines really started to become formalized that you see, you know, not just this growing division between the, the, the humanities and the arts and the sciences, but also growing divisions between different branches of, of, of science itself. So, you know, it's absolutely true. Um, I think it's important to recognize that there are some 
good reasons why that has happened uh because you know these days it is there there is just so much knowledge it, it's so difficult to stay abreast for any scientist to stay abreast even of what is happening in their own field in fact most scientists say they can't do that there is you know just so much activity so much to be learned and uh we we frankly we know so much more in science than we did three or four hundred years ago there you know there is just too much to be to be held in one mind so it's understandable to some extent that this happens um but i i guess i don't see that necessarily has to lead to this kind of siloing of science and i think it's certainly possible to try to find ways of having more dialogue between the sciences so that any scientist has some idea of what is going on outside their field and i think the scientists who do that the best scientists who have that kind of breadth make it very plain that that's actually a, a, a positive thing for their science. You know, this isn't just about uh, learning about other things because it's good for you. It actually feeds back into their own research to have that broader view of what's going on outside. And it's very often the case in the history of science that some of the best ideas, some of the most fertile ideas have entered into a field from outside from people who, you know, look at a problem within a field, but look at it with an outsider's eye and so see things that specialists don't necessarily see. Yeah, the response of some academic institutions to this who have to their credit recognized this is they've produced uh, departments of multidisciplinary studies or interdisciplinary studies. You can even get degrees in those things. But the, the actual sciences, arts, everything else are still siloed and you have this one department. And to me, it's, I, in my opinion, it's, it has been an ineffective approach. Um, yeah. what, you, what you need is the, is the, you know, the people in those proper disciplines themselves having a more open mind or collaborative approach. What, what is the solution to some of this, do you think? <laughs> I, wish there I, knew. Is there? I think a lot of people wish they knew um you know if if i did then i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing probably but um but uh you know i i think it, it it's certainly not as easy as saying well everyone just has to be broad and you know has to learn everything you know not only because that's impossible but also because really science can only make progress by by having people who have an incredibly deep knowledge you know, in, a, in, in what then necessarily has to be a narrow area. We absolutely do need specialists. So, you know, I don't think, although, although there are experiments, and I think, you know, brave and, and interesting experiments in trying to find more interdisciplinary ways of teaching science, um, I do think, I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the people who say, well, you know, in the end, you, you, you've got to have depth of knowledge. You know, if you have breadth, that's, um, there may be some value in that, but you're not going to really solve the, you know, some of the hardest questions in, in these disciplines. So we, we do need that. Um, but I think it's more about um, the, uh, about encouraging a kind of mindset. I think, you know, the part of that solution is finding ways to lessen these ridiculous, actually, pressures that, uh, that young scientists have on them now to produce stuff very quickly. Often they say, we, you know, we, we, there's so much pressure to produce and to publish, to get results and to publish. We don't actually have time to think you know, I think that's one of the real, that's one of the things I hear again and again from, from practicing scientists, particularly young ones. No time to think, no time to step back and, you know, just ponder 
on some of the broader questions in, in, in an area. So I think, you know, if there are ways of lessening the pressures of academia in that sense, pressures to publish, pressures to produce results, um, that would just give a bit of breathing space for people to be in a, a little more broad. Um, I think it, it is very good that there are these experiments in trying to bring dis different disciplines together to create interdisciplinary um, research institutes where people can talk to each other. I know that um, sometimes results from those kinds of experiments have been mixed, um, you know, that it still seems to be very hard to, to resist the tendency of people to just drift into their own little groups, their own clusters of, you know, people who think the same way. Um, I mean, that's, that's life, right? So, but, uh, but, but I think that it's, you know, those are things that, that are worth um, experimenting with. Um, but I think it's also partly about just recognizing, perhaps today more than ever, um, that the, the big questions we face are ones that aren't disciplinary questions. I think that's very evident at the moment, right, with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it's not something that epidemiolo epidemiologists will solve or that virologists will solve or immunologists will solve. Um, and in fact, you know, even those particular sciences need to be informed by and aware of social sciences and, and increasingly of the, the political realities of the situation that they're, they're operating within. So, you know, we have absolutely around us at the moment in an awful kind of way, a very clear demonstration of why we need people who can go between disciplines and bring different disciplines together. And I think, you know, maybe that's part of the key that not everyone will do this. In fact, most people won't have this breadth, but if we can find ways of encouraging some individuals who, who do, who have that capacity and have the desire to do that, then we need to make sure we, we can nurture those people as well. I think that's the key because as you said, the, I feel that it's a byproduct of the advance in science and the, and the subspecialization. Um, so you want to maintain that, but at the same time, for those who have the mind or the intellectual capacity to, maybe they just think in a different way to bring in different perspectives. Why shut them out? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think part of, the, uh, of, of what that entails is rethinking the reward structures for science. You know, at the moment, there's really just one that you have to try and publish papers that, and, you know, and they, if they get highly cited and you get a good sort of citation index and so on, then, you know, you're, um, you're considered to be succeeding. But um, we need more than that. Um, and, you know, that, uh, you know, there's a, I, in some areas of science or in, uh, amongst some people, there is a recognition that actually individuals who are able to bring together groups and manage those groups really well, but don't necessarily publish themselves or even produce fantastic work themselves, they're really, really valuable. We really need people like that. You know, technical skills um, that don't necessarily lead to publications, but that might help to develop new techniques that might be of use to a broad range of people. Those are really uh, vital uh, skills also to have in science. And so we need ways of rewarding people with those sorts of skills that, you know, aren't just contingent on how much they're publishing and what the impact factor of their papers is. Yeah. Now you mentioned now a few times the pressure to publish and how that's the only metric now that's really used in the um, academic and research world. 
Is that not a function of just how competitive things have gone? I mean, to put it quite bluntly, there's too many people in a discipline with too few positions. And I see this all the time where it's rare for someone to cross to the other side to get a position, let's say, a tenure track or anything like that. And then you have this army of people who will just keep doing postdocs and there, and, and then, you know, if they happen to publish in nature or science, then they might go through, but isn't it like, is there too many people doing this? Is that the problem? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's a curious situation because you have, I, I, I think that that is a possibility that we really have to think about you know whether we do have overproduction looking historically um at different disciplines there have been times when there you can say in retrospect there has been overproduction uh, of of specialists you know and there are fluctuations in the same way as there are in in economics in, in in markets but at the same time you know you hear concerns from uh universities that not enough people are choosing to study X, you know, are going into chemistry or, are, you know, going into engineering or something. Um, so, and, and, you know, that, that can be a problem too. And you see the closure of, of, of departments, um, which means, you know, that an academic institution loses that whole kind of area and the potential for that area to fertilize other areas. You need diversity in, in academic institutions. So you have, you know, both of these things going on at the same time. As someone who isn't an academic and isn't fully embedded in that system, I have the luxury of being able to see those things happening, but also the you know the lack of knowledge to 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 really know you know what is going on, how best to think about that, and how best to to manage that. But um, you know, I I, I think that uh, it it does the all of these problems seem to suggest that we. We, we haven't necessarily or at all times got it right in terms of the, you know, somehow guiding the fluxes of different of, of people into different disciplines, uh, you know, depending on the demand for that discipline. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, we, we certainly don't don't seem to have have it sorted in terms of how to support the career development in those disciplines. Um, and I, again, you know, I, I sort of feel like one of the problems there is that there is just this one way to do it, that you, you know, as you say, you, you do a, a PhD and, you know, then you get a postdoc and then you try to get tenure and, and so on. And, you know, there are reasons why that structure exists, but more and more um, people have more, you know, have varied needs. That structure in particular, it's long been clear that that structure makes it very hard for uh, female researchers in the early stages of their career. Um, and there are all sorts of reasons why that is so, you know, that can be talked about separately, but the, 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 the fact is that um, there's a burden that falls on female researchers um, in particular, you know, with that pattern that we need to, to think about and whether there are ways that we can increase the flexibility. Um, but I think, you know, quite generally for anyone, it, it would be useful to have more flexibility in how you can develop your career as a scientist. And I think that's also a way uh, potentially to make sure that there's a greater diversity of people, of ways of thinking 
within science, which is also very important. You know, you don't just need the people who are very focused and able to do their PhD and, you know, follow a very clear path through, through, um, through academia. Perfect. There you go. We just solved that massive problem. So. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah. All right. So uh, I wanted to go over the book before your last and the title there included uh, the statement where everything you thought you knew about quantum physics is different. Um, can you just summarize what are the concepts that um, people talk about in terms of quantum physics that are actually not true? Right. Like, so, um, so, so the conclusions they come to and, you know, it becomes kind of a dictum that, um, you know, it means there are many worlds. It means this. It means that. Like, which ones of those do you feel are inaccurate that are yeah. commonly... Well, I, I mean, first of all, maybe I should say, you know, that that was the, the motivation for writing this book. And it was sort of curious um, compared to most of my other books in that it was one that I felt almost this kind of responsibility descending on me to have a go at writing this book because you know I, I could have thought at that stage there are lots of popular books about quantum mechanics um, and you know plenty of them are very good so does the world really need another one and I would have you know five years ago before I wrote this book I would have thought no probably not but I found myself for one reason or another writing a series of short articles um, for various um, scientific publications and as I did so um, the more I delved into what the work that is being done in quantum mechanics today, in the in the sort of fundamentals of quantum mechanics, trying to understand, you know, how quantum mechanics really sort of works, um, the more I realized that the habitual ways we talk about it, and by we, I don't just mean we science writers, although partly that, I mean also often scientists talking about their subject, that these habitual ways are kind of wrong. Um, there, I mean, you know, some of them are flat out wrong. Some of them are simply misleading. Some of them are misrepresenting what quantum mechanics is really saying. But we've come to, to sort of rely on them just as a quick and easy and familiar way. And we don't really think about them. And one of those is to do with the um, notion of quantum superposition. And this is um, often talked about as the, the one of the, the, the curious things about quantum mechanics is that quantum objects described by quantum mechanics, so particles and atoms and so on, um, that they can exist in two states at once. And, you know, this is one of the things that makes it so different from the classical world where, you know, uh, 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 my coffee cup is either here or there. It's, it can't be here and there. Um, and, you know, I'd use this phrase that uh, that's what a superposition means um, uh, over and over again. But actually, once I r really started to think and to look, you know, at what people who are very careful about what quantum mechanics is telling us, what they say about this, it became clear that that's not really the right way to talk about a quantum superposition. Um, what, it, it, what it really means, if an object is placed in a superposition, then it means that if we make some observation of that object, some measurement to try to find out what state it's in, what it's like, what its property is, um, then uh, several answers are possible. Several results of that observation are possible. 
Uh, okay, so you know, if if I um, with my coffee cup, it's it's in a certain position. If I measure that position by looking at it, um, that's the kind of measurement. Um, it's always going to be there. You know, there's no chance that it's going to be on the other side of my desk unless I've put it there to begin with. Whereas, you know, a coffee cup, let's say in a superposition. Um, when I look at it, I might find it here or I might find it there. Before I look, this is really the crucial thing, before I look, it's not the case, or at least quantum mechanics doesn't tell us that it's the case, that it's somehow in both places at once. The crucial thing is quantum mechanics doesn't tell us um, what it is like before I look. Quantum mechanics tells us about the outcomes of measurements. It tells us what we are going to see if we make a measurement. And generally, it tells us that in terms of probabilities, there's a 50% chance it will be here, there's a 50% chance it will be there, for example. So it became more and more clear to me that actually, um, quantum mechanics doesn't permit us to say what something is like before we look. Um, it, it, it's there are various interpretations of the of the theory um, that people make that say things about that, um, but actually those are just interpretations. They're not something that's part of the theory. So the way I express it is that really quantum mechanics is a theory not of isness but of ifness. So the questions we ask are ones that aren't saying you know, what is this system like, what is happening here. There, it's a kind of theory that says, if we do this, then we might find this. If we look at this object, then we will find with uh, a 50-50 probability that it's in this state or in that state. And so, you know, we need to ask if questions. And that's, that's really what, in my mind, makes quantum mechanics such an unusual scientific theory. Because we're used to, in science, we're used to scientific theories telling us about what the world is like regardless of whether we look or not. Um, and this has always been the curious thing about quantum mechanics, that, you know, we're not sure what it says about what the world is like, but um, we, we, we can use it with great accuracy, incredible accuracy, to predict what will happen if we look at it, if we make a measurement. So I think that's the key idea that I wanted to try to get across in this book. So the, does that reveal fundamentally that we don't understand the actual state that, that whatever we're trying to measure is in. Like we think of it, we're limited by what we can measure and see. So, that, so we think of things as particles or discrete particles with a discrete mass in a discrete location. And when something doesn't exist in that nature, when it's rather a cloud of probability or energy or a wave that we can't quite pinpoint with our measurements, uh, and then when you do measure it, you affect it and change it and you get different outcomes depending on how and when you measure. Is that leading to uh, somebody coming up with the misconception that, oh, that means, um, you know, it's in different places at the same time, depending on how I measure it or how I look at it? Because we're not well, understanding what it actually is at. It, it, it's, I mean, you could say it's not understanding um, that that issue, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I but but I, I guess I I feel like you know it really raises questions about what we mean by understanding because there are some people um, who will say no quantum mechanics tells us all we need to know and all we can expect to know every time we use quantum mechanics to you know um, make a prediction about what we are going to see it it works 
we, we see exactly what we've predicted. That prediction might be, well, you know, you'll see this or that with 50-50 probability. And then we make lots of measurements and we find, yeah, actually, like tossing a coin, you know, once you've made enough, you see exactly that. It's, it's you know, it's one or the other. We can't tell each time what we get, which we're going to see. But, oh, you know, if we do enough measurements, we'll see that quantum mechanics is predicted the outcomes perfectly um but i think you know what 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 interested me there ali is it you were you were saying well um so does that mean that you know if uh that if the quantum system is this sort of cloud of probabilities that you know we don't quite understand what what it means what what i'm saying is um we we that's the language we always use out of habit that the quantum system is this or it is that and actually um quantum mechanics doesn't permit us to say what it is before we look now uh, it's easy to misunderstand that and i think some people think that oh what what you're saying is um you know there is no reality there is nothing there until we look kind of thing um and i'm not saying that and i think um uh that the people who thought more deeply than me about quantum mechanics wouldn't say that either. You know, there are people who believe that actually there, there is some sort of fundamental reality that we just can't access or the quantum mechanics doesn't tell us about. And it, that may be true. You know, that is a possibility. The more we've studied um, quantum mechanics experimentally, particularly in the last several decades, the more it's looked like um, that's not the case. It seems harder and harder to make that case that actually there are, you know, everything really is a certain way. It's just that we can't get at it. Um, but, you know, that's still a possibility that still hasn't been completely ruled out. That was certainly the, the view that Albert Einstein took of quantum mechanics, that it was incomplete, that there was something more that, you know, fixed the way things were that we just couldn't get at. But, um, uh, but 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 I think what what really uh, quantum mechanics seems to say at the moment in in my mind is that um, regardless of whether there is or isn't something concrete to be said about this you know the way things are before we look um, quantum mechanics isn't going to itself isn't going to tell us that quantum mechanics is a theory is a kind of machinery for telling us what to expect when we look at at, at something. And it's silent about, you know, the, about what gives rise to those observations. Um, but that absolutely doesn't mean that oh, there is no reality. It simply means quantum mechanics isn't the theory that will, will get us there. Um, you know, and as you say, some people, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways of trying to understand it. And for some people, you know, they will say, well, um, you know, the way to understand this sort of um, probabilistic nature and the fact that we can't tell if we will get this or that out of it when we make the measurement is that all of those things happen. Um, it's just that when they do, uh, some kind of splitting happens um, so that we only see one of them, but in another world, you know, another one of us sees another. So that's the, the many worlds idea. And on paper, you know, I can, that, that, that's, uh, that's an argument that you can make a case for. One of the things I argue in the book, in general, I try to, to be sort of um, non, certainly non-dogmatic about, um, you know, about the, what these different interpretations that people have put forward. Um, but I find that some seem more persuasive and some seem more problematic than others. And the many worlds interpretation to my mind, 
seems more problematic. There are there are many questions about it um, that you know we don't really know how to answer. And if we really think think them through, if we really think through what it means to have this splitting of reality, if you like, um, that different versions of ourselves go into. If you really think that through, it seems to me that it becomes something that is actually un unthinkable, inconceivable. It's not possible to talk coherently about it. Whether or not that means that we have to rule it out is a matter of, of opinion. You know, some people say, well, so what? Why should it be interpretable and comprehensible or even coherent to us? Um, but to my mind, you know, a, a, a scientific theory kind of has to be if it's going to be useful. So that's really my, uh, the, the problem that I have with the many worlds idea. Isn't it a much simpler um, kind of um, idea is that you know, there is something there. It's real, obviously, because we see the effects in terms of the quantum world. Um, but we just cannot measure it or understand it with the tools that we have, with our five senses, with our machinery, with the photons that we put. Like, we just cannot. And that's why we, get, we don't get discrete measurements that we understand and deal with in our everyday lives. Well, I think the, it seems to me that the question really comes down to is there is this about a lack of information about you know things that we just can't get to about the world um or is it something fundamental about the world um that there is this fundamental sort of unknowability to the world that's really the crucial question uh, and i think all the interpretations of quantum mechanics speak to that question of which which of those things it is and one of the ways that i have found useful to most useful really to think about this, uh, how, to, how to phrase this problem is in terms of quantum information theory, which is the, you know, has become a, 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 a very uh, popular way of thinking about quantum mechanics in the past several decades, partly because it's really, it's tied it to the whole idea of quantum computation. And we, you know, we now have quantum computers of a kind that can do real sort of calculations using these ideas of quantum information. And um, the way I, at the moment, sort of like to think about it, it makes sense to me, is to say that it may be that the world at the most fundamental level simply cannot contain enough information to deliver clear answers to every question we can think uh, of asking the world. That actually, you know, this is the thing we've become used to in our classical world. We've become used to thinking science can ask any question and ultimately we can get an answer and it will, you know, the world will deliver us an answer to that question. And it's generally that's been the case you know so we we have good reason to think that we could just keep on doing that again and again at finer and finer details asking questions and expecting to get definite answers but if it's the case that and some people have sort of postulated it in these terms if it's the case that actually whatever this fundamental stuff of the universe is it can't encode enough information to deliver answers to all, every question we could think of asking if that's the case um, then, uh, then we, the, the, the result would be uh, a world like the quantum world that we find. You know, that's one way of thinking about it, that actually there just isn't enough information that a system can hold fundamentally to always give us a definite answer to a question. And, you know, when, when there isn't enough, then what 
remains when we ask a, that question, the outcome is random, you know, because well, there is just simply not enough information to fix a, a definite um, outcome. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's a possible way to look at it when we don't have answers. But I mean, fundamentally, you have an underlying world or reality there in that quantum world. And my contention would be that we just don't have the tools to perceive it because we operate in this classical physical world, our five senses, the things that we have to measure and look at things, which is applying energy to them or photons bouncing off of them so we could see something or measure something. We just don't have the tools. We're not equipped. We don't live or deal in that world. It's against our intuition, um, our senses, our understanding, our experiences. We're, we just are not equipped at this point to, to make sense of that, but it's there. Um, well, here's one way of looking at it. If we go back to this idea of superpositions, um, so we, we, let's imagine we take a quantum particle and we put it in a superposition of states where it's either to speak in computer terms, where the, um, the state of that system will either be, if we measure it, will, I, will either be a one or a zero. Okay. Um, and then the question is, um, you, you know, if we, at the moment, we, we make those measurements and we might see ones and zeros coming out 50-50, you know, the 50-50 chance in a series of measurements. Um, and the question then is, you know, for any one of those measurements, um, is there some way that we could, um, that we could get at before we make that measurement, you know, is there some way we could tell <laughs> what the measurement would, would give us? Now, you know, of course, that then you get into a regress. You can say, well, how will you know that without, without making a measurement? But that's really what the question is. You know, is there, uh, does that, um, that, that particle already, uh, is it either a one or a zero? Um, and that, you know, in principle, there might be some way of finding that out before we make the normal measurement that we do. Um, that's really the question. And some people think, yes, there is. But at the moment, every experiment we've done seems to suggest that, um, that, that there isn't. There is no way of telling whether it's going to be a one or a zero until we make the measurement. And, you know, if that's the case, then we, we, the only, it seems to me, the only way we can really think about that is, is, is to say, you know, that information doesn't exist in reality until we make the measurement. You know, that is not a component of reality. This was certainly Niels Bohr, the, um, the Danish uh, pioneer of, of quantum mechanics. This was his position that, you know, that, that question, you know, well, what, would it, what was it like before we make the measurement? is talking about something that is not a, a, a component of reality. Um, and it, 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 I guess it seems to me that um, that, may be, that may be a possibility that we have to entertain. And so far, in fact, quantum mechanics seems to be telling us it really is a possibility. In fact, you know, that seems to be how things are. And there are ways, you know, clever ways of, of probing that, of kind of, you know, trying to find out if there was a pre-existing answer or not. And when we've made experiments to try to sort of probe that question, it seems to us to give a clear answer of no, that, you know, there, there really wasn't a pre-existing answer. It really did only come into being when we made the measurement. Um, 
so you know it goes against all our intuitions um that this should be so but this is really what i'm driving at that in a situation like that it may be that it's because that particle it wasn't capable of holding that information it didn't have the capacity to be either a one or a zero beforehand um you know the only information that it could contain is well when is is information that specifies when you make the measurement you're going to get one or the other so if, if it didn't have the capacity to hold that information, yet it did when we measured it. So uh, the, the act of us measuring it gave it that quality. Mm-hmm. Um, that would still mean that before we measured, it, there was something there. But we're, we're not able to assess what that something is. Because with our crude tools, when we measure, we produce the binary things that you talked about. Yeah. So we're so we're not fundamentally then understanding what it really is. <laughs> well, you see, that's that again. That's really the question that uh, you know, we, the, the, and that is language. What it fundamentally really is, you know, perhaps the, at the fundamental level, it's not an is world. It's an if world. You know that really you could say you you know perhaps it's the case that you could say well what that thing fundamentally is is some kind of entity that will reveal either a one or a zero when we make a measurement and perhaps that is the sum total of the of what we can say about it of what it is meaningful to say about it in fact that is perhaps the sum total of the description of the reality of that entity okay that's really the question you know do we have to stop there at saying well that's you know it's not only for practical terms as good as we can do it's actually all there is that could be meaningfully said about that particle um, is it th- th- is that the case, or is there something more that you know underlies that? Um, and we we simply don't know the answer to that. I, but but you know it's important to make clear that's not denying that there was some you know that there was something there before we looked. It's just that we don't have the, not just we don't have the language or we don't have the knowledge, but perhaps you know we we cannot speak. <laughs> it is not meaningful to speak about what the nature of that thing was before we looked. Okay. But either way, there's something there um, that is underlying something else, underlying a reality that we do know and see. Um, is that the concept that gave rise to the hypothesis of a holographic? or a simulation universe? Is that where that came from? That there's some energy producing something else that we then see and feel and touch? Um, it, it's, well, the, the idea of the, the holographic uh, universe, and I um, uh, certainly don't consider myself an expert on, on this, it, quantum mechanics is a part of it. Um, but it's something a bit, it's something more than that. And it's a speculative idea, but an absolutely fascinating one. And it, it really comes out of the um, out of uh, the mathematics of considering the problem in a certain way, because uh, mathematically it has been proved possible to show that in a in, it, it's really making a connection between quantum mechanics and the theory of general relativity. And this is the big challenge that, that you know, uh, underlies a lot of fundamental questions in physics. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's the, the biggest question in physics because physics is much more than this, but it's a really um, tantalizing and challenging problem. How to unite general relativity, which describes on the whole things on a very big scale and describes gravity with quantum mechanics, which on the whole describes things at a very small scale. 
And um, one of the ideas that came out of probing the mathematics um, of, uh, of general relativity suggested that within a certain kind of uh, description of a, gen a, a relativistic description of space and time in a certain kind of universe and in general this has really only been sort of shown for universes that don't look quite like ours that actually have a slightly different sort of gravity to ours but related that the mathematics of that looks like so looks like the uh, mathematics that describes the boundary to that system that space um at the quantum mechanical level that if you if you if you you know describe um, the quantum mechanics of that boundary space, it looks um, like the quantum mechanics of the the, the space time that's inside it, um, and so you know in some sense the idea is then that the that space time is a kind of projection into that three-dimensional space of uh, well if we think about three uh, three-dimensional space um it's a kind of projection of the two-dimensional boundary that's surrounding it um it, it, it described quantum mechanically and so there is this this connection this apparent connection between the two kinds of mathematical descriptions um so that's really what the holographic universe is 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 talking about that um you know the, the universe we we see is is almost like the, it's almost like there's a sort of holographic projection of of it onto the boundary of it that uh we can describe in quantum mechanical terms um so it's a fascinating idea um it is still speculative there is absolutely no proof that this is the way things are um but if there is some truth in it then it seems to establish this something about this elusive connection between the theory of general relativity and the theory of quantum mechanics. Well, to me, when I, you know, when you first hear it, I just thought it was kind of a fantastical, kind of a childish, you know, somebody, it's a lazy way out. Oh yeah, it's just a holograph or it's just a, you know, but um, when you look at some of the discrepancies that we cannot seem to resolve, then kind of it's a good placeholder as a as an explanation like when, when you can't explain the differences between let's say uh you know the quantum world and the world that we see and measure and operate in then you think okay well theoretically that could be maybe it's a projection based on that reality meaning the quantum reality is the real so to speak reality and this is just a projection of that that's one thing the other thing is you know as you know with your background in chemistry and physics that most atoms or matter seems to be made out of space so how can then we see it and deal with it as if it's solid? Um, does that also lend credence to, credence to the idea? Well, it, it's, um, I mean, I think it's, you know, that's a fair way to put it, that it's, um, you could see it as a, a, a sort of space holder idea, I suppose. Um, but it's, you know, it's not the only one. And um, I, I think, you know, it's certainly true that the important thing to recognize about it is that it's not just someone thinking, well, maybe it's this, you know, it does come out of the mathematics. Um, but some of that mathematics is speculative mathematics that, as it stands, doesn't describe the world we live in, but describes something that's a bit like it. Um, so, you know, it's important to recognize that it's a speculative idea, but it's, it's drawn a lot of interest from some areas of the fundamental physics community because it seems to offer a possible way forward, you know, a possible way to, to explore things. Um, and in terms of what it says about the, you know, the, the world we experience, um, 
the fascinating thing is that um, it, it seems to suggest that space-time, which we uh, so you know space and time, which we um, experience uh, as a kind of a thing. We have this notion that you know there is space, there is separation between things, there are distances between things. It's actually saying that's not the fundamental thing. The fundamental thing is a quantum property called entanglement, which talk, which 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 relates to the way the the properties of one quantum particle can be dependent on another quantum particle, um, in a way that seems to disregard the space between them, the separation between them, so that in a sense. Sometimes quantum entanglement is, is talked about as, as though, you know, if you do something to one of those particles instantaneously, it's felt by the other. Actually, the better way to see it is to say that those two particles, if they're entangled, they're in some sense the same quantum entity. You know, even though, uh, even though they might be spatially, uh, you know, light years apart, they're somehow the same entity and space just seems to kind of vanish out of the equation in that case. And the idea is that, um, that actually space-time arises from this kind of entanglement between the, the particles that make it up. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's a completely fascinating, mind-boggling idea um, that's, you know, it, if, in a sense, it's sort of suggesting that space-time is not exactly an, an illusion, but what is sometimes called an emergent property of this more fundamental thing, which is quantum entanglement. But that's what I mean by, like, it seems to fly in the face of everything we know, everything we've experienced, everything that our intuition and senses tell us. So that's what I meant by, is there some kind of hidden underlying reality out there that we're, we're that we just don't have access to because we're stuck in this kind of uh, projection of that, which isn't real, so to speak. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I, I think um, <laughs> it's, I think, almost undoubtedly, even uh, perhaps even sort of um, uh, tautologically the case that there is, that there must be, um, you know, because we know that the description of reality that we have goes down as far as quantum mechanics um, and doesn't go beyond, but there must be something beyond, um, because as far as we can tell, you know, there are many there are smaller scales of, of space and, and, and time that we don't have a theory of. Um, it was pointed out to me recently, I mean, it's kind of obvious thing that we, you know, if we believe quantum mechanics is, is sort of fundamentally uh, telling us anything, then it seems to be suggesting that um, we can meaningfully think about spatial scales going down to something like, well, what's often called the, the Planck scale. So, you know, something like, I guess it's 10 to the minus 34 uh, meters, or I if I remember rightly. Um, but, you know, we only have access to something that to the size of, of atoms or, you know, slightly smaller. So something like, you know, 10 to the minus 10, 10 to the minus 11, 10 to the minus 12. Um, you know, so so that means there's a um, you know a trillion orders of magnitude really of, um, of 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 spatial scales you know between that smallest possible length scale of the Planck scale and and uh, and the ones that we can see and the same with time. Um, now, if we scale that up, you know, if we think about um, sort of having a view of the, the universe or, you know, the galaxy or whatever, but just on that, that kind of, you know, on 
a trillion uh, orders of magnitude bigger than the ones that we experience, we we wouldn't even see we wouldn't see humans. We wouldn't see anything that happens on Earth. It would be gone. It would be you know it would be (laughs) we couldn't even resolve it. Um, So how much are we missing about reality and not having access to all that stuff? between the, you know, the smallest scales that seem possible and the ones that we can actually see. Nobody knows. And of course, this is one of the, you know, this is the question that ideas like string theory are trying to get at. Um, but they're all speculative and they, you know, we, we don't have any uh, direct empirical access to them. So, you know, it could be that the reality that we see is just some kind of, you know, hugely sort of crude averaging out of all kinds of stuff, all kinds of phenomena that are going on at scales below what we can experience and see. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it uh, certainly seems that with quantum mechanics, it seems to be on the surface about size. The fact that the rules don't apply once you get to that uh, small size. And then likewise, as you said, it seems like, is does your intuition, because I know there's no um, way to scientifically know this, but uh, do you feel that we just are operating in a medium kind of world on the scales that we understand, the sizes and scales that we understand, and that the rules that we know, the classical mechanics apply to that? And then, as you said, once you go beyond that or below that, who knows what other realities are there and who knows, and, and you know, these rules certainly don't apply there. Well, yeah, I, I absolutely think that. I mean, it, it's almost necessarily the case, right? Because, you know, this is what we know. And um, this is exactly what I mean when I talk about the fact that we have this kind of is language that we expect, you know, answers to what something is like, because that's what the classical world, you know, expects us to, uh, leads us to, to believe. But another of the things that I wanted to bring out in my book on quantum mechanics is that there, this isn't some kind of weird divide between the quantum world and the classical world, um, you know, that one runs by a certain set of rules and one runs by another. The more we have come to understand about quantum mechanics, particularly in the last sort of two or three decades, the more I think it has become clear that the classical world that we know at these scales, at human scales, is exactly what you would expect quantum mechanics to look like at that level. Um, you know, we have uh, not com- not complete, but a much better um, dis- understanding of how it is that the classical world, the classical physics comes out of quantum mechanics. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really, I mean, I say it in the book in, in terms of saying, you know, the every, it's, it's quantum all the way up. It's just that this, you and me and what's around us, are what quantum mechanics looks like if you're six feet tall. So I think that that's going to be, I, I feel fairly confident that that's going to be increasingly the case, that we're going to think, oh, you know, there never was this quantum classical divide. This is simply, you know, how quantum mechanics plays out at these you know, bigger scales. Does the holographic simulation hypothesis negate the need to unify and uh, to, to come up with a unifying explanation that encompasses quantum mechanics with classical Newtonian mechanics and Einstein's theory of relativity? Because you don't need to unify them because you're just calling it a projection or a holographic simulation. Is that a cop-out in a way? Um, I don't think it, I, I wouldn't see it as that way. 
um, see it in that way. I, I, I think that um, it is actually an attempt to unify the two and to try to offer a description for how space-time with the properties that general relativity says it has, and you know, it seems to, to that seems to be borne out, that a space-time of that nature it can come out of quantum mechanics. It's an attempt to explain, again, you know, in, in a similar sort of way, if you like, how, how that can be the case, how space-time at the scale of cosmology, um, you know, that, that the properties it has perhaps are the ones that we would expect if fundamentally quantum mechanics is, is, is pulling the strings. Um, so that's really what it's trying to do. I think it is trying to actually unify those, 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 those two descriptions. Um, but, you know, again, I, I don't want to, um, uh, I, can, I can't stress enough that it's, it's a speculative idea that there is no evidence that it's right. It's a very, uh, in some ways, you know, it feels like a very beautiful idea. And I'm often a bit wary about ca calling things beautiful in, in physics because I think sometimes that can mislead. But I, you know, I think that it's, um, it, it really is very, very striking, but it may be completely wrong. So <laughs> we just don't know. Um, now you, um... Uh, I know that you're not a fan of the many worlds idea or the multiverse or the infinite universes. Um, can you tell us what a valid argument for that would be? Can you play devil's advocate and tell us why the people who advocate that believe in it? Well, I, I yes, I mean, I, I completely understand the, the motivation for believing in it because, um, you know, there, there has been this... Um, I, I suppose one way of thinking about the, the, the problem is that um, when we think about a superposition, um, it, it seems there are two possible outcomes. Um, you know, let's, let's say, I mean, there could be more. There, there are two or more possible outcomes of an observation of a quantum object that we could make if that object is in a superposition. So, you know, in a sense, it looks as though um, there's some measure of reality to both of those possibilities uh, but we only get one when we look and the question is where does the other one go to and you know one of the most problematic things about that process of looking is that um, the, 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 the uh, equations of quantum mechanics tell us everything happens smoothly that you know that things change smoothly over time uh, in, a, in a sort of wave-like way. But the description that has often been uh, of necessity sort of used to, to understand what happens when we make a measurement is one where there's a sudden change. Suddenly, as we make the measurement, you know, we get one outcome and the other one has vanished. And that is a, a, a description that in mathematical terms doesn't have that smoothness. It's, it's um, the technical term is that it's a non-unitary process. And quantum that that's not part of quantum mechanics as as currently formulated so you know it seems to 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 violate uh what the quantum equations um tell us happens so that's really the 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 worry that um uh you know that has been around and what the many worlds uh suggests is that um that problem goes away that non-unitary behavior when we make a measurement goes away if we make the uh, if 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 we make the assumption that in making that measurement 
both outcomes are possible, that, then we, 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 it, that is then a unitary process and you get that sort of splitting of worlds so that both outcomes are actually observed but in different universes. And mathematically, you know, if, you, if we just think about um, a, a, a single particle and, you know, being measured, mathematically you can sort of, uh, you can formulate quantum mechanics in a way that seems to suggest that that you know both of those outcomes actually occur and everything stays unitary there is no you know there is none of this sort of abruptness that the theory doesn't already have in it so that's the um that that's the reason for 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 the many worlds um that it's a kind of a way of if you like saving the maths from this ugliness from this sort of ad hoc way of you know getting from the description before in a superposition to the description after when you've made a measurement um, and I can understand the, uh, you know, why that was proposed and why people find that more elegant. Um, there are all, there, there are questions even at that fundamental level of, you know, what then you, we can possibly understand by probability, because, um, you, you know, the, the, um, what we, we then have to, if we believe in many worlds, we then have to say, well, here I have this object that I placed in a superposition. Um, when I make a measurement on it, I'm going to measure it in state one with 100% probability. But I'm also going to measure it in state zero with 100% probability. It's just that they'll be in different worlds. Um, you know, there are no more probabilities. But, but yeah, what does that mean? What, how can we, you know, that sort of, if you like, that, that probabilities are meant to work that way. You can't have 100% of two completely contradictory outcomes. So there are problems, you know, there about how to think about what probability means. But I think that it, it, it also, to my mind, becomes very problematic if we don't, if we go beyond just taking that as a, you know, description of that particle, you know, being measured and really start to follow this idea that actually the whole universe somehow is split and I have split as the measurer and there are two different me's that have made those measurements and seen different outcomes and so on. This is the way that it's often talked about and it's done so in a way that to my mind owes more to science fictional ideas of you know splitting personalities and multiple personalities than anything that you can actually formulate a scientific theory of or even think about in a coherent way um because you know the fact is that if this is true then it's not just true when a physicist in a laboratory makes a measurement on a particle it is true more times than you can possibly think about every passing moment every time two uh, you know two particles interact and there is an outcome that is kind of you know classically resolved a certain outcome a, a protein does a certain thing within your cells or something every time that happens then it's hard to see how you can avoid the whole world splitting every quantum interaction has to involve something like this so you know it's not this kind of leisurely occasional splitting that we can process it's happening you know, everything is 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 up for grabs if you like and if we really try to think that through and what that you know what that means for individuality for perception for consciousness it becomes very hard to see how you can even think coherently about it i mean wouldn't that mean that at any point in time there's an infinite number of possibilities and futures and which one you access will depend on what you do and well, I mean, I guess it will be saying that 
which one you access, you know, you have no control over. We, we never know when we make a measurement on this particle if we're going to be in the one world or the zero world. In fact, there's fundamentally no way we can have any control over that. But it's worse than that because, you know, I've even in talking in those terms, I'm saying, you know, whether I will go into this world or that world, what does that mean? I will go into both of them. The me now will go into both of them. So what is this me? What is this I? We can't use those expressions anymore. They have no meaning. Um, and, you know, it seems a problem to me uh, that uh, if a scientific theory obliterates any meaning for the scientist, for the use of pro personal pronouns, basically, um, you know, that that sort of becomes a bit, a bit incoherent. But you're absolutely right that actually, you know, it's, it's worse than that, because there are some measurements we make where, you know, there can be literally uh, uh, not just a one or a zero outcome, but a whole continuum of outcomes. In fact, you know, a radioactive decay is a bit like that. It happens, you know, it seems to happen by chance. A single uh, a, a radioactive atom will decay at some point. Um, and we can't say at what point. We can only say, you know, on average uh, that we can define a half-life and so on. But, you know, as far as we can tell, down to the Planck time, you know, there is a continuum. It could happen any time during that process. So you do have this kind of infinite, you know, infinite splittings really in that case. And that becomes then even harder to understand, you know, that there are countless numbers of infinite splittings happening every, you know, every every sort of Planck time. Um, it, 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 it becomes a very hard thing to uh, to talk about coherently. Yeah. Now, um, uh, like our understanding is that physics leads, gives rise to chemistry and chemistry re lead, gives rise to biology. And I know you've talked about this. Um, can you illustrate, are there any uh, provable links between, uh, you know, quantum mechanics and biology? Well, there is this uh, uh, active research area called quantum biology, which looks for exactly that to see whether there are quantum mechanical effects that have biological consequences and um normally you know we're we, we think that this 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 seems unlikely at face value because quantum mechanics the, the effects of quantum mechanics are usually we we can only see them in very well controlled laboratory conditions often at very very low temperatures way beyond anything that um that living organisms can survive. Um, so, you know, no one really sort of thought of that this was a possibility for a long time. But actually, um, that we, we've known, you know, when we think about it in these terms, we've known um, that at least in some cases, there are, are very well established ways in which quantum mechanics can have biological effects. Um, and that is in the way that um, both electrons and protons, so hydrogen ions, um, can be passed between molecules and both of these electron transfer and proton transfer are very very common in biochemical reactions they happen in enzymic reactions in all sorts of ways um, but both of those particles the proton and the electron are small enough that um, they feel even in the sort of warm you know wet messy conditions of the living cells um, they, they sort of feel the effects of quantum mechanics. So what happens is uh, you, you get something called quantum tunneling, where they can make, uh, they can sort of, if you like, jump through a barrier um, that in classical terms, they wouldn't have enough energy to get through. 
Um, and this is a w very well-established phenomenon that happens, you know, in chemistry and in biochemistry, and it's been measured in enzymes that there are quantum uh, tunneling effects on proton transfer and electron transfer. So there is one clear example where quantum mechanics is playing a role, if you like, in biology. I mean, what's not clear is that it's playing a role in the sense that somehow biological molecules have been sort of fine-tuned by evolution to take advantage of quantum tunneling. You know, that's possible, and some people think that that's the case, but we can't automatically assume that. It could just be, well, this is something that will happen, you know, regardless of what evolution does. So we don't know, but it certainly happens. But other people think that there might be other areas where, uh, in, in biology, where quantum mechanics plays a role. One has uh, been that's been suggested is in photosynthesis, when um, a, a pigment molecule, a, a chlorophyll molecule absorbs a photon of sunlight in a green leaf and uses that energy uh, for photosynthesis, that energy has to then be transferred to somewhere else um, in the membrane of the of the leaves. And that happens, um, and, and it, it's been suggested that that transfer of energy might happen in a way that makes use of quantum mechanical effects to make it more efficient. Now, um, there have been a lot of arguments about whether that's the right description, uh, and some people are adamant that it isn't. Um, and certainly, you know, in the 10, 15 years or so since it was first proposed, I think it's become clear that it's not as simple as that. Um, and that, you know, whether you can truly sort of describe that as a quantum mechanical process that's making use of some kind of, you know, wave properties of the electron, that that's not clear. Um, but it's possible, you know, this, this is one of the other areas that um, quantum biology is looking at. So, you know, it's a very interesting question, I think, whether there are areas of biology, particularly, you know, it's, we're talking about the, the ways that molecules behave in biology that make use of quantum mechanical effects. And um, the question really is, you know, whether there's, whether this is something quite general and how widespread this is, or whether it's really just sort of um, uh, restricted to things like, you know, an electron transfer and proton transfer. Yeah. Um, so is there a clear cut uh, difference between how uh, physics and quantum physics functions in inanimate objects versus living objects, which temperatures are different, conditions are different, chemical compounds? Um, well, I think fundamentally, um, there isn't. I mean, fundamentally, I have seen no reason to think that there is anything special about life in that sense that it has that non-living systems lack. And in fact, you know, we see many cases where things that happen in life, uh, we might see analogues of that in non-living systems. Um, the way that, you know, spontaneous patterns form um, in living systems, that there may be examples of that that happen in non-living systems. Um, and increasingly, um, you know, it's, I think, becoming clear that we need to describe um, living systems in terms of, in thermodynamic terms, um, that are the same kind of, you know, that involve the same kind of ideas that we use to understand the thermodynamics of non-living systems or, you know, ordinary chemical reactions that aren't biochemical. Um, so, you know, there's no, um, I, I think there's, there's no reason uh, to invoke anything like what used to be called, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, uh, the vital principle of life, some, you know, mysterious process that applies only to living organisms. However, that said, 
um, we still don't have a, a good description of what it is that constitutes a living system. Um, and, you know, we, we, I mean, we're, we're not, not even sure whether there, I, I, my suspicion is that there will not be such a description that, you know, there isn't, that asking what is life doesn't have a, a single answer. I mean, we already see, you know, with the, um, the, the, the existence of viruses, that there are chemical systems that do operate right on the boundary of what is living and what isn't. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, 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 I think that there really is a continuum between the two and that, you know, but, but, you know, on the, uh, nevertheless, there seems to be something special about life that arises out of these um, uh, more fundamental principles um, that really has characteristics that, um, you know, that are special <laughs> and um, that in particular, of course, make it susceptible to evolutionary change, um, which is something that, you know, we can bring about artificially in the lab or in computer simulations or so on, but that, um, that I think, you know, life really seems to embody in the, in the natural world in ways that are very hard to see in non-living systems. Um, so I hope that gives some sort of answer to your question. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, the only person I've come across of that seems to understand what life actually is was the fictional character from uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein when he discovered what the spark of life is. So he put together different organs, made up a human, put life in it. Um, but you're saying that it's, it, it's not explained by the sum of the physical and chemical processes that are in place. There's still something, is there well, something think, missing or, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you're right. Sadly, Victor Frankenstein didn't say what that principle was. He said he discovered it, but he never said what it was. Uh, so we will never know. Um, no, I, I, I think um, I, what I would say is I see no reason to believe that life needs something extra, something beyond the science that we know. But at the same time, we certainly don't have a full theory or understanding of living systems at the moment. Um, and you know we're creeping towards it and finding and we're, we're creeping towards it using you know the metaphors of the time really which in in Mary Shelley's time was electricity and electricity held the key to life and in these times seems to be computation and there's a lot of discussion about you know compu computation life being a kind of computation which I think has some validity but I suspect too is not going to be the complete answer or supply the complete answer yeah, that would be a publication in Nature magazine, I think. It would be, uh, well, I think it would be a book, <laughs> at least. I don't think you're going to get that into a Nature letter. Um, now, I wanted to shift a little bit to biology. Um, why do you think symmetry is so prevalent in, at least in macroscopic organisms? Everything seems to be symmetrical. Two eyes, two hands, two, all animals, all... What, like I think it's a, it's a, it's a particular way things could have turned out. But why is it that way? Why is that yeah. the only way that survived? Um, well, it, it, it's it's a good question, and I I'm not sure that there's uh, a a good answer to it. Um, it it's um, or, or certainly why there's a good answer to um, the fact that that symmetry is so often bilateral 
in in organisms so you know we have a, a left and a right side but why don't we have you know fourfold symmetry and starfish have fivefold symmetry it's interesting in fact um that uh starfish with their their fivefold symmetry evolved out of bilateral organisms you know it wasn't that this was an earlier form of evolution it was that for starfish it turned out that five was a good uh good number to to have um so um you know i Would mean that be the the minimum number of redundancies you need so that you could still function could you think that played a role in the evolution? well uh it's it it, it 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 i think it has more to do with the nature of the environment um that we that we live in and the fact that you know for example there is the, the symmetry of the environment is broken by gravity so we have a top and a bottom and it makes sense to have a, a, a you know a top and a bottom um and if we lived in much stronger gravity if or if we, if we were if we were flat animals then we wouldn't have a top and bottom it would be much more sort of laterally um spread but um you know i think that uh this is um th this has proved to be a good solution for for animals plants have a different one plants are full of symmetry but it, it's not the bilateral symmetry that we have there are plants some plants that do have bilateral symmetry but there are others that you know have different structures for the way their leaves form and you know the number of petals they have and so on so um you know i think um there there are various reasons or various arguments why um symmetries of some sort uh can be useful um not least because you can then have modular growth you know you have uh you, you know how to produce one part and you just keep doing that again and again for several parts um but uh you know i i, I guess it's maybe important to recognize that the symmetry the bilateral symmetry that we're used to uh you know in animals like us is not the only symmetric solution that nature has, has has alighted on. All right. And now being one of the very rare interdisciplinary scientist uh, humans uh, to talk to, I just have to ask you this. Um, how do you reconcile entropy with biological living organisms, which seem to be very organized, at least at, in their nascence or at the beginning of their being? Well, I, I, I think that if there is to be some kind of description of what life is, it will, this will play a part. That, that, that is to say, um, it will be something uh, that, that describes how it is that living organisms are able to maintain, uh, to develop and maintain organization in the face of entropy, in the face of the second law of thermodynamics, which you know, suggests that everything must become more disorganized, if you like. Um, but I don't think there's any uh, uh, big mystery in the way it does that, because you know, it, life doesn't violate the second law of thermodynamics, that we're, 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 we're generators of entropy, the fact that we're warmer than our surroundings, you know, we're constantly <laughs> shedding heat and creating entropy in our surroundings and that's really what what life does that it wins some order at the cost of spreading entropy into the environment and so the the, the overall result is that entropy increases 
um, you know, as, as as life happens. And we know again that this is this isn't something unique to life either. Um, that you know, we, we we see spontaneous ordering and organization in non-living systems in nature. And whenever we do, that too is one at the cost of generating ent uh, entropy in the surroundings. So that the net result is always for the universe, if you like, is always an increase in entropy. So you know, that's one of the um, beautiful and surprising things that has come out from understanding non-equilibrium thermodynamics, the, the thermodynamics of systems like us that are out of equilibrium, that are dynamic, that are changing. The fact that if you have systems like that, then they can become ordered, they can become regular uh, in some sense. And, you know, that is one of the characteristics of life. It's not a unique characteristic of life, but it's one of the crucial ones. Yeah. And what's your simplest answer for the age old question, uh, which has been answered, but it is, why is something the color that it is? Like, why is this particular object red, grass is green? Um, it, that's a more subtle question than is sometimes recognized. Um, because a part of that answer has to do, of course, with the light that comes off it. So, you know, the nature of the light that reflects from something um, is is really a question of what 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 that thing absorbs, what the molecules in it absorb from from the visible spectrum. So, so, they, it, so they, they absorb everything except that one color that is reflected. So what does yeah. that tell us about that substance? Yes. So, and that, well, well, that um, depends on its chemical nature. Um, so, you know, for example, there are some uh, metal ions, which are present in some, th some colored things, you know, uh, often have a, 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 tenden a tendency to absorb in certain sort of color ranges. So, uh, you know, copper ions often absorb in the red and reflect in the blue and green. And so copper compounds are sort of bluey green. So, you know, th th there's a, it's certainly well understood, you know, how that happens. That's and, Vulcan blood. That's why um, it's... Exactly. And also squid blood, actually, is... Um, is, is Octopus, uh, yeah. Yes. Um, and um, so, so that's a part of, you know, what makes colour. It's the question of what, li what light from the visible range that our eyes register, you know, wh which wavelengths are absorbed and which are reflected. Um, but it's more than that, because, you know, it only becomes colour in our minds. Other, you know, there is no intrinsic color, if you like, to, to the light. It's just different wavelengths. Our eyes absorb that light and process that. It, you know, it, it creates a, a stimulus that gets sent to our brain where colors are created and produces, you know, the particular sensation of a particular color. And what's really important to recognize is that that's not just a function of the light that our eyes receive, it's a function of many other things, of the, the, the ambient light uh, surrounding it, and you, you know, that, that our color perceptions can be, can, can be changed and can be fooled in various ways. You know, there are color illusions, we can see illusory colors. Um, so, you know, it depends on the, on the context as well, how our, how our brain processes uh, color. So color is partly a physical phenomenon, and it's partly a psychological and neurological phenomenon. I know one of your works was entitled The Invention of Color. Is that the notion it was alluding to? Um, 
the uh at how different uh colored substances particularly pigments for paint had been discovered and invented throughout the ages and what that had done to the way that color had been used by artists so you know as different colors and more colors became available to artists more possibilities opened up to them and they made different uses of color so it was really looking at the history of the use of colour in art through the perspective of the development of pigments. So partly through the, the, the innovations in chemistry that, that allowed them to be made. Yeah. And lastly, um, you're writing on the patterns in nature, why the natural world looks the way it does. Um, can you give us a brief synopsis uh, of the punchline as to what that's about? That's um, relating to this issue that I've talked about of spontaneous ordering and pattern formation. And it's really looking at that question very generally, whether in living systems or in non-living systems, and making the point that often those, uh, those, those, those patterning processes that happen, particularly in systems that are out of equilibrium, that often they share similarities in very different systems. So you see the whirlpool form of a, a, a tropical cyclone, uh, you know, is reflected in the shape of galaxies, um, and the, the the spots that you, you you see on a you know on, on on a leopard might be similar to the spots that you see on a ladybird. And there are you know non-living systems, there are purely chemical systems you can make that also create spots in what seems to be the same sorts of ways. So it's really it was really making the case that there seemed to be um, just a, a, a really small set of patterns and processes that give rise to patterns uh, in the world and that we see these playing out in systems that seem to have nothing to do with each other. Um, so it's explaining you know, how those patterns form, where they come from. Is it because they're all obeying the same underlying laws of physics, so they're manifesting in different environments in similar ways? Well, it, it, in some sense, you could say it's because they're obeying the same laws of mathematics, that there are mathematical uh, equations that you can formulate that describe this patterning process. And it just so happens that they can be applied to perhaps a system of chemicals diffusing around um, or the way um, individual organisms in an ecosystem interact with one another um, to create, you know, structures of sort of communities or of nests or, or something. So ultimately, you know, it's suggesting that these, that these are mathematical laws and that the same mathematics happens to apply in both cases. And to what extent does probability play, play a part in those? Well, uh, often these patterns are a, 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 an interplay between chance and necessity. So, you know, there, there are um, certain mathematical rules that set the basic pattern that you'll see, for example, whether it's spots or stripes and then chance plays a role to perhaps introduce defects into you know to 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 slightly sort of randomize those patterns so that for example the spots don't form into sort of egg like egg box like you know perfectly crystalline arrays of spots but they're a bit jumbled um so you know they look a bit like that but they're a bit disorderly um so yeah that's really the 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 um the, the the interplay that we often see in natural systems between you know something that drives a sort of uh, a, a drive towards regularity and the disrupting effect of randomness and noise in the environment has anybody come up with like a um, a unifying mathematical equation to kind of predict or like you know 
describe all these different seemingly disparate phenomena? Well, there's no single theory of pattern formation or no single mathematical you know, equation that will describe them all. But um, one very general set of equations that describes you know, a remarkable number of patterns is, is one that was devised in 1952 by the British mathematician Alan Turing. Um, and it turns out that his equations or his patterning process you know, can describe patterns that form in uh, in chemicals in in um in animal markings and again in in sort of community structures um you know in ecosystems uh so yeah that's an example of the kind of general mathematical theory that can you know go between different areas of science perfect well thank you very much dr ball it's uh it's been great talking to you thank oh, you it's been a pleasure thank you yes it's thank been